You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut. Every game revealed. The 2024 NFL Schedule Release, presented by Verizon, coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Hi, Katie. Hi, Brian. And hello, listeners. We hope you enjoyed our first dispatch from London last week with Graham Norton, who I think is adorable. I was just in Paris. (laughs) As they say, not in London. (laughs) Exactly. We'll be bringing you more conversations from the UK in the month to come. But today we have another destination podcast for you of a very different sort. Is it like a destination wedding, Brian? (laughs) Something like that, or more like Robin Leach's Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. So we recorded this one in a mansion overlooking Beverly Hills. We figured what better place to interview a household name like Dr. Phil than, well, in his house. And let's be clear, this is not an ordinary house. From the rolls in the driveway to the Murano glass ping pong table, Phil McGraw and his lovely wife, Robin, clearly relish their creature comforts and each other. We've been married 41 years. Almost 42. Yeah, for almost 42. Been together 45. And we just are having more fun than a barrel of monkeys, you know? It's, it's crazy. And we have a good time. And we love it up here. Sometimes we get behind these gates and... Sometimes we won't leave for a week or 10 days. I was going to say, I don't think I'd ever leave the house if I lived <laughs> here, know, believe me. I've got me. my tennis court here. i got a clay court here, which and is good on the And you play every day? I play seven or eight times a week. Clearly, he's in really good shape. And, you know, while he loves living in this house, it was Robin who first fell for it. She noticed it under construction about a decade ago, and she liked it so much she started driving by every few months to check on its progress. And Phil noticed how much his wife loved this house, so he decided to buy it for her. So he just approached the owner and wrote a check. And when you host the number one daytime talk show in America, like Phil does, you can just do that. But here's the romantic part, Brian. Phil didn't tell Robin what he had done. He wanted to surprise her. So one day he suggested they drive to the house together just to check out what was going on. And when they arrived, the gate was open. So was the front door. Robin was a little freaked out. She was wary. She didn't want them to call the police. But Phil convinced her to walk with him to the porch. And here's what happened next in Robin McGraw's own words. Let me tell it. Let me tell it. I'm hiding behind him because, of course, I trust him. He'll protect me. But I said, Philip, okay, okay, I've seen it. Let's get you, Philip. It makes me laugh. (laughs) I said, but let's get in the car. Let's go. And he goes, you're fine. Let's look. And I'm like, no. And all of a sudden, he flips around. He picks me up in his arms, carries me over the threshold, and says, "Welcome home." I just bought you this house. Wow, clearly she gets a little giddy just talking about it. And so when Brian and I asked for a tour of their digs, well, the McGraws were happy to oblige. Have you seen the wine cellar? No, we haven't seen the wine cellar. I think it'd take us about a week to see all the house. We have a wine cellar with the the ceiling came from the Tibetan rainforest, from Tibetan monks from the 1600s. It's amazing. 
Brian, doesn't your wine cellar ceiling, uh, wasn't that made by Tibetan monks, if I recall? Yeah, but in the 16th century. I mean, I think the 17th century ones are just junk, so I refuse that. (laughs) Just so gauche. (laughs) Meanwhile, all that wine and even a bar in the house, but both Robin and Phil are children of alcoholics. And Phil told us he doesn't drink. I just resolved early on because I saw what it did with my dad. Mm -hmm. So did you ever drink? Did you ever try it? I tried in high school. I tried to get drunk in high school. And I would get a hangover while I was drinking. Brian, who needs alcohol? The view from the backyard is absolutely intoxicating. You can walk in the front door and see all the way across downtown because we love the weather out here and we love opening these doors and looking out and just seeing everything that we can. It's spectacular. You have this big outside area and then... It leads to a swimming pool, which is beautiful and a spectacular view. Just your typical American family house. So, (laughs) listeners, it was a lot to take in. We really uh, could have taken you with us for this one. I think they all would have fit in the house, actually. Yeah, I think that's, (laughs) I don't know what that says about our ratings or their house, or maybe both. They would have been very crowded and very tight, but. (laughs) Extremely crowded. (laughs) And when we were done peeking around, Katie and I sat down with just Phil to talk about really everything. This was one of our most thorough and interesting interviews yet, at least in my view. I think you also mean long, so get comfortable everybody. <laughs> we had a lot to cover from how Oprah was instrumental in his success to the critics who are not fans of the medicine Dr. Phil is dispensing, especially because they say he's not a real doctor, even though he does have a PhD in psychology. And in fact, Brian, you know, when I posted a photo of the three of us on Instagram, there were a lot of positive comments, but also quite a few negative ones, too. One person wrote, this guy is con man, one podcast I'll be missing. Someone else chimed in, Dr. Phil is an arrogant jerk. And then there was this person who said, not stoked about him, but will listen because of you, Katie Couric, and you, Brian I wrote Goldsmith. that one, actually, just to give you a little boost. <laughs> anyway, thank you for that. Thank you for holding your nose and listening to that listener. But clearly not everyone, Brian, is a fan of Dr. Phil. But at the same time, Phil's show is top-rated and, by the way, is now 16 seasons in, so he's doing something right. So I'll be curious to hear, Brian, if we change any hearts and minds with this episode after people hear a little bit about Dr. Phil's backstory. So we put him in the hot seat for a change and tried to find out what makes him tick. And by the way, what got him into psychology? Long before his TV show was ever a thing, Phil trained to be a psychologist, and he and his dad went into practice together in Wichita Falls, Texas. So I wanted to know, did he always dream of getting into people's heads? There was a specific time, I can tell you the specific moment that I got interested in it. It wasn't something that I kind of warmed to. There was a specific moment in my life that it became a, a focus of mine. Well, I'm excited in, to hear about this. What was it? <laughs> it? It involved football. And I was in Oklahoma City, and we were on a team that really had a lot of great equipment and great uniforms. I mean, everything was we had black uniforms with silver stripes. Very Friday and, night lights. Oh, very. <laughs> and armbands. I mean, we looked badass, I'm telling you. And we <laughs> thought we were badass. And we had a game rain out. And the Salvation Army had a team. And they called our coach and said, I know you had a game rain out. Could we come Monday and play a scrimmage game with you? And the coach said, sure. So Monday, they show up over there to play us. Three pickups pull up, and these kids start piling out of the back. It looked like the Grapes of Wrath. I mean, and I'm aging myself. but <laughs> I don't kid- think anyone thinks she grew up uh, <laughs> with John Steinbeck, but go yeah, ahead. But, but, I mean, the, the kid, for example, that lined up across from me had on blue jeans for football pants, and he had them rolled up, so they kind of looked like football pants. He had on loafers for shoes instead of football shoes. He had a button-up shirt. And he had the number four on it with masking tape. And I'm thinking, you know, we're in a huddle kind of snickering, you know, like, come on, why didn't he put it on a magic marker? That's going to come off. Well, he didn't put it on a magic marker because that was his shirt. That wasn't his shirt for the day. That was, He had to wear that to school the next day. And so we, they don't kick off because it's a scrimmage. They just snap the ball. And 
they snapped the ball. That kid hit me so hard, it still hurts when it rains. I kid you not. <laughs> really? They beat us like they were clapping for a barn dance. I mean, <laughs> I, I thought it was a track meet. They're running up and down the field. We can't catch them. They're, they probably beat us 50 to nothing. And I remember getting in the car Everything hurt. I had dirt in my mouth. You know, I'm looking out of the ear hole of my helmet. I I asked my dad, "What the hell happened?" And he said, "Well, you just got your ass handed to you, boy." I said, "Well, I was looking for a little more depth of an answer." And he said, "They were just hungry. They wanted it more than you did." And in that moment, even at that age, I was like 12 years old. I thought, if they can do so much with so little, what should I be able to do when I've got good equipment, coaches, a grass field? And I was envious. I walked away from there envious of those kids. I wanted what they had. Isn't that interesting? And here I am, envious of these Salvation Army kids, because they had grit. They had they had a burning in their gut. And at that moment, I got focused on studying why people do what they do and don't do what they don't do. I wanted to know. So while all my friends were putting together model airplanes and sniffing the glue, I was in the library trying to read books on motivation and why people some people had it and some people didn't. I started at 12 years old. I became fascinated with it, and I've never, ever stopped being fascinated wow. with it. You spent a lot of time as a psychologist studying the treatment of pain. I did. Um, which obviously is a very big issue these days, not just with opioids, but according to the NIH, more than 25 million Americans experience chronic pain, which is pain every single day for the last three months. Um, I don't think people who don't have pain realize how debilitating and depressing it is. What do you attribute this epidemic of pain to? Well, yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up. Robin and I just got back. We testified before a joint committee, a bipartisan committee in Congress last week about the opioid crisis. And uh, particularly with regard to addicted mothers and their children, either that they're pregnant with or have just had, and what should happen to them, because I feel very strongly about that. But there's organic pain, and then there's pain that is perceived, and and there's two very big differences there. And I, I used to run a pain clinic inside a hospital, and there are so many alternatives to the management of pain besides opioids and these other painkillers, but medicine has become a high-volume business, and it takes time to teach people neurotherapy, biofeedback, do cryotherapy, do other things to manage pain. That takes time. It takes two seconds to write a prescription, and there are enough opioid prescriptions right now for every person in America to have their own bottle. And if you take those pills past the eighth day, you have a one in seven chance of being addicted at one year. If you take them at 30 days, if you're still taking them, you have a one in three chance of being addicted at the end of a year. This is an epidemic. What should be done? When you testified on Capitol Hill, I mean, what do you see as the, the way out of this mess? Well, I, I think there has to be accountability right now. There has to be accountability. I think the doctors have to be made highly aware of what's happening with these people and the high level of risk for addiction. Look, these doctors, most of the doctors that are writing these prescriptions are well-trained, well-intended, responsible professionals. But they need to be constantly reminded that these patients will ask for more and more and more as long as you'll give them to them. And so they have to have a constant reminder, and they need to give three to five of these pills, not 30. And then the manufacturers have to be held to account in that regard. And because what's happening now 
is you have a whole new population of heroin addict in the suburbs because they take the opioids for a period of time and then they stop taking them because heroin's cheaper. Right. So you've now got soccer moms on heroin because they can't afford the opioids. It's a whole terrible. new population of heroin addicts. It's really a and terrible And you spoke issue. about the danger of mothers and fathers who are addicted. And maybe the mom was addicted while she was pregnant. Right. Or they're addicted while they have a young kid. What do they do in that situation? How do we respond as a society well, to those people? What Robin and I are advocating for is for them to repurpose dollars in the Family First Act, where now the dollars are only allowed to be used for foster care. And what we're advocating is that instead of using those dollars for foster care, put these mothers in family-based residential treatment where the baby stays with them. Yeah. And you say, well, why would you leave a baby with a drug addict mother? Well, this may be the only time the mother hasn't been on drugs is while she's in the treatment center. And she might be there six months, seven months, eight months, but she's there with her baby. And what happens is you're now, you're not putting two people in the system. You put one child in foster care, you put a mother in prison or whatever. You can't punish your way out of this epidemic. So if you put the mother and child together in a family-based residential treatment center, A, the mother's going to bond with the baby. They're less likely to abandon the child later. You're not going to load up an already overwhelmed foster care system. So they just need to free up some of that money and let it go to treatment. You're not going to punish your way out of this. You're going to treat your way out of it. Before we talk a little more about your road to success, Phil, and I know Brian is particularly interested in courtroom sciences, which you (laughs) co-founded as Brian's a lawyer, but I, I wanted to ask you about recent events having just talked about opioid and this epidemic, there's an epidemic of gun violence happening in this country. As I came over to see you today, as Brian and I met you at your house, there was yet another shooting in your home state of Texas outside Houston in a town called Santa Fe. Mm -hmm. I don't know the latest numbers, but what last I checked, it was eight or nine students. At least 10 students murdered in their high school. And it makes me so upset and so infuriated. And this, of course, comes on the heels of Parkland, which was, what, just over three months ago. Phil, what are we going to do about this? You know, I had many of the Parkland students on my show, and I had some of the uh, Columbine students there at the same time. And Uh, there was a real interesting dynamic there because these Columbine students were saying every time this happens... They get re-traumatized. It triggers for them, and they never really got what they needed in the interim. And this is, by the way, almost 20 years ago because Columbine happened in 1999 because I covered that shooting. And by the way, there was a girl who was interviewed today who was at the school... And she was asked the question that all the reporters asked, do you ever think it could happen here? And her response was so striking to me. She said, yes, I thought it could happen here because it's happening all over the place. I expected at some point there would be a shooting here. I think there have been, uh, you know, we can look it up right quick, but I, I think there have been close to 30 school shootings so far this year. It's like one a week, I think. Yeah, something that's just terrible. Um, you know, here's the problem. From a psychological standpoint, we absolutely do not have the ability to predict who's going to do this. Um, And you can say, well, if if anybody has a history of mental illness, don't give them a gun. The mentally ill population has a lower incidence of violence than the general population. I know, and it infuriates me when people say it's mental illness because that is such a red herring. And it also stigmatizes everyone with mental illness. And there are mentally ill people in every country, but they don't have this gun violence problem. So what is the solution? Um, I I think what we have to do is have an intelligent conversation about this instead of a political yelling match about this. Because right now you've got people on both sides of this issue that take something like this and politicize it. 
I think what you have to do is start out by saying, let's see what we agree on. You know, anytime I'm negotiating with somebody, the first thing I try to do is narrow the issues and say, before we try to resolve our differences, let's see what we agree on. Because when you do that, you often find out that you're not nearly as far apart as you think you are. On this issue, though, Phil, I honestly really wonder for the super extremists and, you know, 74% of NRA members actually believe there should be more sensible gun laws. But for the extremists who believe there's a slippery slope, and this is the price of liberty and freedom, this is what we have to put up with. There's very, there's not much of a Venn diagram between the two groups. So that doesn't mean there can't be. I mean, look, is there any theory under which somebody needs? an AK-47, is there any theory under which anybody needs an assault rifle? I don't care if you're the most staunch Second Amendment supporter in the world. Is there any reason that there is a recreational use, a Second Amendment justification for an AK-47, where you can put out so much lead, so much death in a short period of time, that... Let's find out, there has to be some sensibility that comes along with it. You can't have rights without responsibilities. And you can't say we have to throw out the amendment. That doesn't mean you can't have some modifications within this. You you have people right now that are just so, they have so much firepower to do so much devastation in such a short period of time that we are setting ourselves up for destruction. That has to change. It absolutely has to change. It's time now to take a quick break. When we come back, Phil tells us about his old gig running a trial consulting firm and how this work led him to the woman who gave him his big break. I'm talking about Oprah people. That's right after this. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, stay connected wherever you go and transform your vehicle into a dependable Wi-Fi hotspot. Powering applications like real-time GPS and voice assistant, navigation becomes a breeze. Even on the practice field, AT&T in-car Wi-Fi keeps you connected while in proximity of your vehicle. Work, stream shows, or finish homework without missing a beat. See if you're eligible for a free trial at att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi. Don't let connectivity be a roadblock in your journey. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. And now back to our interview with Dr. Phil McGraw. In 1990, you took a turn in your career. You co-founded a company called Courtroom Sciences, Inc., predating CSI. You had the original CSI, which was a trial consulting firm. Can you explain what that business did, what you did? Yes. um, Basically, in... Every situation, if you know what your fact pattern is, you may have a thousand facts. I'll promise you there is a subset of those thousand facts, maybe 10 or 12, configured in a certain way that, if presented, are your best chance of getting home, your best chance to getting to a verdict. And 
trial science is about finding out, out of that thousand facts, what are those best 12, and who are they best presented to, and in what way. And so we always researched cases. Uh, We trained witnesses to tell the truth effectively. There's a big difference between telling the truth and telling the truth effectively. And we were very active in jury selection. It's really deselection, but in shaping who gets on the jury and then figuring out what they need to hear to support your case. But do you ever feel that's unethical in any way? Do you feel like it's stacking the jury? It's kind of antithetical to uh, a you know a jury of your peers because only wealthy clients can afford the services of somebody like that, and that um, I don't know that there's something that just is intrinsically unjust about that. Telling the truth effectively? Not so much telling the truth effectively, but handpicking people who you believe will help your client. Well, that presumes that the other side is not handpicking the jury as best they can. Well, if they have a public defender, probably they're not. Oh, we work with the public defenders a lot. Really? Sure. Uh, We did a lot of pro bono cases, but understand they're trying to pick the best jury they possibly can. Do I think it's unethically to do it better? No. No, I don't. Doing your voir dire thing, right, Mm -hmm. Uh, is how you met Oprah Winfrey. It is. So that was back in the day when she was being sued for something she said on her program about mad cow disease, right? right? So tell us about that meeting. And obviously, there was some kismet. Uh, for both of you, and she had you at hello, or you had her at hello? Well, she was sued, and again, this is a situation where, in the court of public opinion, she was sued by ranchers, cattlemen, which was not the case at all. She was sued by cattle manufacturers, These were feedlot people that moved cattle by the tens of thousands through feedlots. This wasn't Joe Rancher out here cowpoking and, you know, feeding his cattle. This was the the agricultural industrial complex. It, It was big business, big business. And she made a comment about beef and cattle futures went limit down on the Chicago Board of Trade that day, which equals billions of dollars, and so she was sued um, unjustly, in my opinion, and so they took her to trial in federal court in Amarillo, and... um, Not a great place to be. (laughs) Not a great place to be, again. I was going to say. I remember just as the trial was starting, she leaned up to me and said, "Um, I don't see any peers over there. I don't Meaning see... Meaning no black jurors? I don't see any black jurors. I don't see anybody over there looks like me. And 80% of that panel derived income directly or indirectly from the beef industry. Then why couldn't you move to have the trial relocated? Because the judge said no. Oh, I hate that. <laughs> so did I think it was unfair to help her? No, I didn't think it was unfair to help her. And we worked on that. We... We tried that case several times to figure out what that configuration of facts were. And um, we worked on it for two and a half years before trial. And then when it went to trial, we all lived in a bed and breakfast. Uh, Myself, Oprah, uh, Chip Babcock, lawyer extraordinaire, um, her executive producer, Stedman, was there some. We lived in a bed and breakfast out on the edge of town for couple of months like the sister I never wanted <laughs> but if you're going to have an extra sister Oprah's a great one to have right <laughs> so we lived together uh, out there and tried that for a couple of um, couple of months and ultimately you prevailed we zeroed them out yeah we zeroed them out and uh, 
We had a great, we had some great times during that. The, Did you have a steak dinner to celebrate? No, we had pork dinner <laughs> to celebrate. But we used to, we used to go from the bed and breakfast to the courthouse, and we had to put a, a this big tent up over the portico here because there were death threats when we were in cattle country. And so there was a lead car and then a bulletproof car and Jeez. then a chase car and we'd have to load in many a day and nobody knows this, so it's a little other way else. But many a day that motorcade would pull in there and there'd be this big flurry and everybody would jump in and zoom off to court. And about five minutes later, Oprah and I would go out the back door and get in my rented Toyota. And we would pull out and drive around Amarillo and go through the mall and look around. Go to and Jack in a Box. Exactly, Jack hang out. Do you, uh, do you think Oprah should run for president? Uh, I think she is a wise woman that has uh, much more knowledge of international affairs and geopolitics than people would ever imagine. Uh, whether she should run or not, you know, that's up to how much sacrifice she wants to make. But uh, she certainly is better prepared than some. And you'd vote for her? I would vote for her because I know how well she prepares. I know how smart she is. And I know how sincere she is. So you published the first of nine best-selling books soon after you worked with Oprah. And so many of your books deal with the challenges families face, especially married couples. We talked about the amazing marriage you and Robin have. Um, Katie and I are both married, obviously. Not to each other. No, I don't think anyone made that misunderstanding. (laughs) (laughs) So what are your top three or four pieces of advice on developing or maintaining a happy marriage? I think what, you know, first off, preparation. I, you know, I think everybody should go through premarital counseling. And by that, I mean, work out what the challenges are going to be ahead of time. You need to figure out where you both stand with your expectations on family, children, finances, in-laws, religion, geography, division of labor, all of those things. Um, I don't think you should ever get married till your uh, intended has had the flu. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> if you don't see them, if you don't see them in their worst possible light, you don't see them throwing up and sick and I mean, you, you got to see them <laughs> not on a marriage is not a date. It's yeah. not 365 dates put together and that's a year. You got to see them in their most unflattering light. But you certainly need to go through marital counseling. And, you know, it's not what happens in life that upsets people. It's their it's violating their expectation of what was supposed to happen in life. If you go into marriage and you think, you know, my wife's going to meet me at the back door every day with a martini and a big <laughs> smile on her face. or Wrapped my in husband, saran wrap. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's like every evening at my house. Yeah. <laughs> you know, my, my husband is, you know, he's just going to take me out dancing every week. Look, and then you get in a marriage and you have division of labor. You have to go on a budget. You have kids getting you up at night you're going to think, oh, my God, this is horrible, and you're going to label it a failure. But if you expected those things to happen, and then they do, you go, yeah, this is about what we expected. We're doing okay. So you have to have realistic expectations. Really important, too, to talk about money, I think, before you get married, because I think that is the number one divider of couples. And to have a really good understanding about people's priorities and how they feel about money, their relationship with it, I think is is something that people feel uncomfortable discussing, but not that I'm putting my Dr. Phil hat on, but it seems You're to exactly me right. really, if, really important. If, if you talk to the American Bar Association uh, family lawyers and ask them, what are the number one reasons people show up for divorce? That's on the short list, you know, money, sex, uh, parenting, these are the things that people clash about because they didn't work it out to begin with. And, you know, another big thing is 
if you have to stop being all of who you are to be half of a couple, bad deal. Bad deal. You got to let your partner be who they are. And if they got to stop being who they are to be half of the couple, the cost is too high. I couldn't agree more, but I also think a big problem, I've suddenly become a marriage counselor, is that when you take your partner for granted, right? When you sort of stop trying, when you get lazy, when you, I mean, I find like, you know, you have to try to look decent when when you're married and take care of yourself and um you know sometimes i find that i fall in that trap that i'm like i can't believe my husband is still married to me but the way i kind of i'm just a hot mess some of the time and i don't think he cares most of the time but i i think you you have to keep trying i guess is what i'm trying to say in in, in a clumsy you know, way you know a relationship any good relationship is going to be based on a solid underlying friendship. And what do friends do? Friends talk to each other. They tell each other jokes. They laugh. They share their day. And you'll see a married couple that'll pass each other in the hallway. Uh, uh. That's all they do. <laughs> or, or they're out at dinner and they're not talking to each exactly. other. That makes that breaks my heart. But then you see each of them go to work and they see somebody in the hall. And they go, hey, good morning. How's it going? What would you do last night? They'll put their social mask on and put an effort in at work with somebody that they won't do at home. At least do at home what you will do at work. Oh, you sound like my husband. Well, there you go. You married a wise man. Have you been talking to John Molnar? You married a wise man. John, stick with it. (laughs) So to return to our episode of uh, This Is Your Life, Dr. Phil. So you became a regular on Oprah's show. And then with her help, you developed your own show. And... You know, I I told a couple of people I was going to talk to you. And one thing that came up is how much of your show is entertainment and how much of it is psychological treatment? I mean, how do you think about that question? Well, let me, I have to stop you for a second because you, you, you glossed over that real quick. You said, with her help, you started your own show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, with her help, I started my own show. Um, I was spent five years on the Oprah show and she was the most generous spirited person. I mean, you know, a lot of people wouldn't be that way. Uh, particularly when I enjoyed success and there were rating spikes and stuff like that. She would just keep just pushing me to the forefront, pushing me to the forefront, pushing me to the forefront. Uh, there, there were times when I would be on the show she would just go sit out in the audience and put a little table next to her chair and get some hot tea and say, what are you going to do today? I mean, there was nothing. She she did everything she possibly could to establish Dr. Phil as a brand, as a personality, just the, the most generous, supportive person you could ever be. I, that is so nice. You know, you're uh, right. Many people would oh, be like, wait, he's getting higher ratings. Get oh, rid of him. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, we're... I, I, I talked to her all the time. I was just with her last week. We spend lots of time together. Um, now, so I just had to say Fair that. enough. Yeah. Uh, then your next question. I, I've been asked this a lot, uh, usually uh, intended as an insult. I don't take you. I don't intend it that no, way. No, I don't take you that as asking it that way. I get asked it as an insult by people saying, isn't a lot of what you do just entertainment? <laughs> That's kind of how I get asked it. So, um, And my answer to them is, God, I hope so. Um, because <clears throat> if I don't present stories in a compelling way, if I don't present scenarios in a way that really get people intrigued and involved, they're going to go do something else. So I, I do try to present things in a, in a way that is interesting and, and compelling. Um, how much of it is entertainment versus psychological treatment? I, I hope it's all entertaining. None of it is psychological treatment. Um, I think of it as education, and I think of every guest I have as a teaching tool. Um, and when I say it's not psychological treatment, I mean, 
I, I'm never under the misapprehension that I'm doing eight minute cures up there in segment two. Um, people ask me sometimes, you know, Dr. Phil, do you think problems are as simple as you make them out to be? I don't think problems are simple at all. I think they're often very layered. I think they're often often comorbid. I think they occur in parallel with different disorders happening at the same time. I think the solutions are often very simple. Hmm. I think we make the solutions too complex sometimes. It's it's kind of the old joke. You go to the doctor and says, it hurts when I raise my arm like this. And he says, well, then quit raising your arm like that. You know, you're fixed. Give me $10 to go home. Um, sometimes there are two pathways you can go when you look at helping someone have a better life. You can go down a psychiatric pathway, a mental illness pathway, or you can go down a behavioral pathway. And a lot of times you can behave your way to success. You can manipulate your environment to success. And then there are other times where you have a brain imbalance. You, you Neurotransmitters are disrupted. You need some biochemical replacement therapy, something of that nature. Um, but a lot of times the solutions you You've just gotten in a situation where you're rewarding bad behavior or you're not requiring enough of yourself. Sometimes the solutions are pretty simple when you step back and think about them, but the problems can be very complex. It must be challenging, though, at times because you want things to be interesting. You want them to be educational and also entertaining. But do you ever worry that you're being exploitive. And that, to me, would be something that would be in the back of your mind. I know that, you know, we all get criticized when you're in the public eye, but but you've been criticized for a couple of things, like the having Shelley Duvall on the show when she was clearly having some serious mental issues. Or, you know, are there other circumstances when you thought, mm, maybe I, I, I went over the line, maybe this wasn't the best use of my skills, or maybe I did exploit this individual more than I should have. You know, I could tell you that there's, I've never done a show where I was insensitive to that or decided I'm just going to do that. I don't care what. Um, I, I think there have been times when I've looked back and thought there was there might have been a better way to have done that or there it might have been better to not to have done that at all. Mm -hmm. uh, so sure, I mean, I've probably done 18,000 guests and there were probably a handful of them that um, – if I had it to do over again, I would have done it a different way or not done it at all. Um, but we approach these guests, I, I think, very thoughtfully. And we have a real policy in the way we approach it. Like, for example, we won't book anybody that's currently in therapy unless we contact their therapist explain what the show's about, what we're going to do, and get their permission in writing. Or we don't book them, not one time in 16 years. And there have been some therapists that have said no. And we agreed because they said there's something you don't know, and here it is. And we said, absolutely. Or there's something you don't know and we can't tell you. Yeah. <laughs> right? That's what I mean. They yeah. said there's, there's some things you are not aware of. But, you know, I have an advisory board on Dr. Phil that's made up of the top minds in psychology, psychiatry, sociology, medicine, theology, nursing. A lot of these are editors of the peer review journals and stuff. And if I have a particularly complex case, I'm able to send this out to them and get their input and feedback. So we have a check and balance system. And so we really are very thoughtful about it. Not always right, of course. Um, but we're really mindful of it and try and do a good job, but are we perfect? Of course not. Was there, is there any one that sticks out in your head where you think, gosh, 
in hindsight, being 2020, mm, I, I, I regret that. You know, the, most of the things that I regret are things I didn't do rather than things we did. Like, for example, there was a show recently where um, a really defiant teen said, she was talking about something, and she said, oh, that girl is such a retard. And um, that's just so offensive to my sensibilities. I mean, that's like an F-bomb to me. And then something else happened, and I was going to go back and call her on that and make certain that people know I don't endorse that. It's not okay to say that. Something else happened. I got distracted. Next thing I know, the show's over, and I realize I let that go by. I, I didn't. I let her get away with that and implicitly endorsed it. I let that happen. And I, I hate that. I mean, I, I really hate that. You couldn't have done it at the end or done a little add-on? I think we did. Yeah. I, I think we did afterwards. But, it, I, you know, you sh- I should have called her right there. I should have stopped what was going on right there and said, don't. Given how much it. care you put into the show and, as you just described, Phil, it must really stick in your craw when you get criticized by some of these folks, like a sociologist from Middlebury named Lori Essick. She has said, quote, Dr. Phil is the modern-day equivalent of the Victorian freak show. Things are packaged as educational and medicinal, but they are really just excuses to show off the most vulnerable people in our society and make us feel better about ourselves. A Victorian freak show? Yeah, I didn't know Victorians had freak shows. I think what she's sort of alluding to is sort of during the Victorian era when there would be circuses with, you know, the bearded lady or, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, that's sort of what I took it as. Yeah. You know, I'm one of those people that doesn't feel the need to be loved by strangers. And, uh, of course, you want everybody to love you. And Well, you want them to respect you, yeah. and this wasn't very respectful. And I'll promise you, if that person came and spent 30 days with us here and came home with me on Monday night and went through the 250-page book that I have for Tuesday morning show and looked at the cross-sectional history, the longitudinal history, the medical history, the career history, the interviews of collaterals that we do to verify everything, the research section on OCD, if that's what the show's about, or anxiety, neurosis, or whatever. Um, Went through everything that we do to prepare for that show. Um, I think she would be embarrassed to say what she said. And the difference is, I am here Monday night. I do go through that book. So I do know what we do and how seriously we take it. Uh, So I don't give my power away to somebody that doesn't know what's going on. On a different topic, I'm, I'm curious your reaction to this. For years, there was something called the Goldwater Rule, preventing psychiatrists and psychologists from diagnosing politicians from afar. This started when a bunch of people in that profession did this to Barry Goldwater when he was running for president. And yet, a number of very prominent, respected psychiatrists and psychologists have not met with Donald Trump, but they've said he's delusional, he's paranoid, he's narcissistic. I mean, do you think these people should just shut up about their concerns, or do they, as they believe, have a duty to warn the public about what they believe is President Trump's dangerousness? Well, that's a compound question with about five different parts, so let me take them one at a time. Uh, They don't have a duty. Um, the Tarasoff decision is very specific about the duty, and in order for them to have a duty, there has to be a specific threat against an individual that they consider to be legitimate. 
And at that point, they have a duty to warn either the police or the individual. Um, and that Tarasoff decision is a California decision, and that certainly is not the case with Donald Trump. So there's no duty for them to warn. Now, they may f- feel like they have a moral duty, uh, but that's in violation of the canon of ethics that they swore an oath to when they went into practice. Um, y- you You cannot diagnose someone from afar. And... If you took all of the transcripts from my shows across 16 years and you did a word search on, I cannot diagnose you here, it would probably come up a thousand times because I want to make it very clear, they haven't even met him. And I'm sitting there with the person and I say, I can't diagnose you here. To do so, I would have to do a very elaborate interview, probably a set of psychometric tests, um, maybe some lab work. I mean, there'd be a lot of things I would have to do that I can't do here in 42 minutes and 18 seconds between commercial breaks. You can't do that. Now, they haven't even met him. I have met him many times. Um, and I, again, I can't diagnose him. Um, what they can say is, generally speaking, I observe behaviors that cause me to be concerned about what he might be capable of doing. They could say, I can't diagnose him, but if I was going to, I can tell you the short list of my considerations would include narcissistic personality, impulse control disorder, um, paranoia. You know, they, they might say these are things that would be on my short list because the diagnostic process is a differential diagnostic process. You start wide and go narrow, right? Well, I think they kind of have done that with those caveats. I don't think they've said, without a doubt, he is a malignant narcissist. I think they have used those caveats, but they have said pretty much in in you know, no uncertain terms have made that caveats and some of them have yeah but but do you so you you don't have a problem if people say this behavior seems to me to be consistent with blah 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 you know i think anybody can opine about someone else's behavior i think when you're a professional that opining has is going to be looked at uh, differently, so I do think they need to make those caveats. Um, I, I've been asked, do I think he's a narcissist? Um, and I've said, well, here are the diagnostic criteria. Make up your own mind. I, you know, let people make up their own mind. I mean, it, his behavior is certainly out there for people to see, but I don't think anyone really is in a position to know what all is is going on with him. I, th- I think we can say that his behavior is certainly atypical for a statesman. Do you worry about his behavior, Phil? Uh, not only as a psychologist, but also as a... As an American? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I did not in the beginning, and I'll tell you why. I've always thought of the president as being kind of a committee function. I mean, didn't you really think there's checks and balances around a person like this? There's going to be a chief of staff, and there's going to be secretary of state. There's going to be a people around that if somebody starts going a little rogue, they're going to, hey, Kay, hey, come here. Inhibitors. Right. (laughs) Um, I don't have that feeling anymore because it seems like they're rotating in and out of there so fast and and are so subject to being fired that I don't have the the sense that there is a check and balance system. I don't mean executive, legislative, judicial. I mean just a dynamic. Yeah. Yeah, just a dynamic inside there that somebody can say, let's pump the brake here and and think about this because I don't think it doesn't appear to me that there are 
people in that inner circle where there's mutual respect. Maybe there is, and we don't hear about them, but I don't have the same comfort level that I did before. He's kind of gotten rid of the guardrails. Seems to me. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about before we leave and end up spending the night here, Phil, (laughs) is the Me Too movement. You know, you've watched this unfold, and it's been a real awakening for a lot of people about gender and about sort of workplace equality, et cetera. And I would love to get your views on this movement and if there's anything about it that concerns you. Well, I hope that people don't think that this is a Hollywood phenomenon because we've been doing shows for 16 years about this power abuse with people from Omaha and Spokane and Cleveland working on assembly lines and in all kinds of jobs. And, you know, we always say rape, for example, is not about sex, it's about power. And, you know, it always gets headlines when pretty people have problems, when famous people have problems. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, if a really famous person, a beautiful woman or a handsome guy contracts a disease or whatever, and it draws a lot of attention to disease. Like Rock Hudson with AIDS, for yeah, example. I mean, that's, that could be a, a really good thing to move the needle of awareness. But this is happening in school systems all over the country. It's happening in factories all over the countries, in grocery stores, in everywhere that there's a hierarchy, these kinds of things can happen. And I just hope that that awareness doesn't limit itself to just being a media phenomenon in high-profile situations. I hope people realize that it's more than that. What would you say to men who seem confused by this and to other people who are worried that all bad behavior is being lumped into one big bucket? Yeah. You know, what I hear from a lot of men is that they're taking extreme precaution and saying, I I just simply would rather have a, a male secretary or a male assistant or whatever, and I hope that doesn't create a backlash that causes... Um, that hurts women, ultimately. Yeah, exactly, that causes young women to be left out of meetings, left out of dinners where deals might be made. If something's being negotiated, sometimes at a dinner meeting or something, or a position is being filled, and they're there's backlash and they're not considered for that position because they're afraid of the exposure. I I, hear that a lot too. Yeah. I I hope that doesn't happen. But I think the pendulum, you know, pendulums always swing and they go to the extreme and then they tend to settle back in the middle. And I hope that happens. So you've become, and I'm not sure how many people know this, like a one-man entertainment empire. It's not just your show. You're like Merv Griffin for crying out loud, Phil. (laughs) You've got a startup with your son called Doctors on Demand. You've got the CBS drama Bull, which was just renewed for a third season. And it's based on your history as a trial consultant. You've got The Doctors on daytime TV, which you executive produce. Why why are you doing all this stuff? Well, you know, I I think um, I I find this to be an intriguing, um, I I find it to be an intriguing industry. And if, you know, if you're in, you're in, you know, go do what you're doing. And, um, you know, we'll produce a thousand episodes of television this year. Uh, from stage 29. Uh, We've got another show, Face the Truth, which starts in September. And uh, we have another drama uh, that will go to air on CBS All Access uh, very soon. And uh, a comedy we're working on with uh, Showtime that'll be going uh, very soon. And And stage 29 is your production company. uh What's what's a comedy on Showtime? Uh, The comedy is just... uh, terrific. It's based on a true story. It's uh, Women and People of Color is the title of it, and it 
is based on a true story of a of a woman that was an African American housekeeper that actually out of the blue inherits more money than the people she worked for. And so the whole dynamic changes and they start living in each other's worlds and start to discover how different things are and it's a much more Norman Lear type comedy that I think is going to be really, really great. So one project stood out to me. You executive produced Daily Mail TV. Right. What motivated you to do that? Well, that sounds pretty tabloid, Phil. Uh, <laughs> Daily Mail is the most... Um, it's the most widely read English language yeah. website in the world, yeah. right? And they, they file 900 to 1,000 stories a day. What percentage on the Kardashians? And uh, a fair <laughs> amount of the Kardashians, but they do a lot of really human interest stories. Um, and they've got so many correspondents around the world. And you have something like this tragic shooting. Um, they really approach that from the human angle, not just the 10,000 foot news reporting, but they'll really be on the ground and talk to the people and they take a real human interest. It's not all celebrity and it's just really human interest stories. And we've worked with them a lot over the years and so they really wanted to have a television um, component to it. So they approached us and um, we approached them about that, and then they came back to us and said, we want to do it with, with you guys. And so we started um, last year, and we shoot it in New York out of WPIX, and Jesse Palmer's our host, and uh, it's going really, really well. So to wrap things up, gosh, where do we go from here? I guess by asking you, where do you go from here, Phil? I mean, do you think you'll ever retire? You're 67, right? Yes. And playing tennis every day on the right. tennis court, right uh, in down the, the path in the yeah. backyard. Right. Um, you know, is there anything you'd like to do that you haven't done yet? Uh, you know, I I don't know. I It's probably something I don't know about, but um, I am so blessed in that I have the opportunity to work with both of my boys every day. Um, Jay is uh, involved in television and production, and then he has a number of uh, companies, uh, Silicon Valley-based, and um, he travels around a lot, but I have an opportunity to work with him every day. And my son, Jordan, who's a musician, uh, I work with him in the music business. So I get to see and or talk to them at least three or four times a week. And I mean, how lucky is that? And uh, we laugh and have a great time. And I, I love that. And I bet they teach you too. Oh There's something gosh. called reverse mentoring. Well, where let me tell you, they're the world is so different and they're, you know, Jay works with all these venture capitalists in the Silicon Valley and, and all in uh, Jordan in this music business with Spotify and all these things that I know nothing about. And he's really great at, uh, I learned so much from them, but that's what will keep me from ever retiring is just having the chance to work with both of them and have a good time. And uh, love having those grandkids uh, over here. They don't live far away, so we get to have them. So I'm having a good time. So as long as I'm healthy and feeling good, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. And if you had to offer one piece of advice to our listeners, what would that be? You know, I think we all have a personal truth. That's what we really believe about ourselves when nobody's looking and nobody's listening. I'm not talking about the social mask. We all put that on and go out there every day and put our best foot forward. But we all have a personal truth. And I think it's so important to know what that is because we generate the results in life we think we deserve. And I grew up with a really damaged personal truth. Because my dad was an alcoholic, we were poor, utilities were getting turned off, and, you know, violence in the home, and you feel like second class. And if you have a damaged personal truth, you got to admit it and work on repairing it because you want to generate good things in your life. And 
days turn into weeks and weeks turn into months and months turn into years. And you look back and say, you know, why did I settle for less than I really wanted? And I think people do that a lot. So I really encourage people to really, if they've got things about themselves that bother them, admit it, put it on your to-do list, fix it, and watch what happens in your life when you do. Well, that's a nice way to end. Dr. Phil, Philip, (laughs) Phil McGraw. Well, Katie, we're going to have to keep meeting like this. We've been doing it for a long time. It's so fun. You're, You're such a pleasure to talk to and to listen to. Well, thank you guys. I appreciate it. A huge thank you to Phil and Robin McGraw for hosting us in their extraordinary home. And my usual thanks to the Stitcher folks who helped make this show happen from soup to nuts. Gianna Palmer. Oh, that makes me hungry. Nora Ritchie and Jared O'Connell. Also, thanks to our dream team over at KCM, Katie Kirk Media, Allison Bresnick, Beth DeMoz, and Emily Bina. Katie and I are the EPs of this show. Mark Phillips wrote our theme music. We cherish your ratings and cherish reviews. Cherish them. <laughs> cherish is the word are I use to apply. Are you going to sing cherish? Cherish is the word oh, I use Oh, that wasn't the one I was thinking of. The Madonna one. Cherish, cherish, you well, know. This shows our age difference. I'm singing The Association. You're singing Madonna. That's true. We're both old. We <laughs> appreciate everything you do over at Apple Podcasts, reviews, ratings, etc. Please, please subscribe to our show if you haven't already. You get every episode as it comes out, and it helps us spread the word. We love it when you come back week after week. So that's all for us. We'll be back next week with more from our trip to London. Cheerio! (laughs) I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2 and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.